Chapter Six of Trading Jeff and His Dog. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Trading Jeff and His Dog by Jim Kilgard. Chapter Six Visitor. Sleeping in the same corner where he had slept so many times, Pal moaned softly and twitched his paws. He dreamed that things were as they had once been, and that he was hunting grouse with Johnny Blazer. Pacing ahead, Pal scented a grouse and showed Johnny where it was. There came the shotgun's blast. The dream faded, and Pal woke up. Instantly things resumed a normal perspective. The scent of Jeff Tarrant filled the cabin, and mingled with it was the odor of Dan Blazer. Pal remembered meeting Dan before, every summer, but never for more than ten days at a time. Johnny had brought him to the cabin for a visit. Though Pal liked all children, he saw only an incidental connection between Johnny and Dan Blazer. However, if only because Johnny had once welcomed the boy and Jeff was now welcoming him, Pal was happy to accept Dan, too, and to include him in the select circle of intimates who deserved every courtesy. Next to Jeff, he would respect Dan. Though his nose told him that all was well, Pal did not go back to sleep at once. The dream had been a very vivid one, and it brought a surge of memories that was strengthened by being back at his old home. The past remained a puzzle. Pal had never understood why Johnny had disappeared. He still did not understand, and he was troubled because of it. Having a dog's instinct for time, he knew that the night was about half gone, and because he was familiar with the habits of humans, he was aware that Jeff and Dan probably would not get out of bed before sunrise. Equally at home in daylight or darkness, Pal had never known why people preferred to spend the night hours in a cabin or shelter, but he had never questioned their doing so. They were humans. He was a dog. Therefore it always befitted him to shape himself to their ways and never even think that they should bend to his. Sometimes Johnny had taken him out at night to hunt coon, and Pal rather hoped that Jeff would do the same, because he liked to run at night. But it would be all right if Jeff did not. After a short time needing contact more intimate than his nose offered, Pal rose and padded across the wooden floor. He ascended the steps, walking quietly, because experience had taught him to be quiet. Pal existed to please his master, and his whole life must be shaped to that purpose. There were no delights which, directly or indirectly, were not connected with that. When Johnny had patted his head and praised him, Pal had quivered with joy. Now he reacted in the same fashion to Jeff, and his life was a full one. He ascended the steps, walked to the bunks that Jeff and Dan occupied, sniffed gently at each, and went back to his place in the corner. He had made doubly sure that Jeff was still present, and that partially satisfied him. But because the dream and the cabin brought Johnny back to him, he was still able to sleep only fitfully. Pal recalled last night. 
He had been very worried when Jeff went away and left him in the cabin. Ordinarily it would have been routine, for Johnny had often left him alone. But a great fear had grown out of Johnny's death. Hal had seen him leave and been sure he'd come back, but he never had. Now he was fearful that Jeff might not return. Dan, who understood, had tried to give him comfort. He'll come back. Don't you worry. He'll come back. But Pal would not rest until Jeff's return, and then he was happy again. He wagged his tail because the two in the cabin greeted each other gladly, and he drooled at the odor of frying pork chops. Eating his share, Pal looked puzzled when Dan started to wash the dishes, and Jeff began to work with the broom. In Pal's opinion, the cabin was satisfactory, and he had never understood the quirks of humans that kept them forever doing something that did not look like fun and seemed unnecessary. But Pal resigned himself to the cleaning up. He flattened his ears and retreated into a corner. He dodged from place to place whenever the broom came near, and relaxed in his own corner only when Jeff finally put the broom down and started replacing the broken window panes. Unoccupied and thought deserted, the cabin had been rifled of many things belonging to Johnny. But there were enough dishes and tableware left, for Johnny had kept a great store of it to provide for his guests. Dan yawned, and Jeff sent him to bed. But the young peddler worked for a long while afterward. Finally giving Pal a pat on the head, he too sought one of the upstairs bunks. Now Pal raised his head at frequent intervals. He had a great yearning to visit again the sycamore tree, the last place where he'd seen Johnny. But the door was locked. If the customary routine was followed, it would not be opened until Jeff and Dan got up. Rising, Pal walked nervously around the cabin, sniffing at all the objects he knew so well. He went to his corner and did not leave it again until dawn's thin light turned the cabin's black windows to a pale gray. He heard a bunk creak as Jeff moved and raised expectant ears. For a short interval there was silence, and then came Dan's sleepy voice. You awake, Jeff? Nope, I'm sound asleep. Pal heard Dan giggle. There were various little noises that accompanied their getting out of bed and dressing. Tail wagging happily, Pal met them at the foot of the stairs. He went first to Jeff, who gave him a pat on the head, and then he offered his morning greeting to Dan. These ceremonies complete, he padded over to stand in front of the door. Jeff understood. I'll let you out. Pal slipped through the open door and waited for a while in front of the cabin. This was his country, but he had not forgotten that it had rejected him. He had walked safely with Johnny Blazer, but he had been clubbed and stoned after Johnny was no longer with him. That lesson had penetrated deeply. When Pal finally left the cabin, he did not go down the path, but went at once into the brush and walked slowly. Alone, he had better be careful. He stopped when he caught the scent of a rabbit that was hiding in the brush. For a moment he was tempted to chase it, because chasing rabbits was fun. But this morning he had a more urgent mission. 
still walking slowly nose questing and ears alert he made his way to the road and halted in some thick brush beside it he would not expose himself on the open road until he knew what lay ahead across the road and up the opposite slope a doe and fawn were feeding pal caught the faint odor of grouse and he knew that a skunk had wandered that way last night later a fox had minced along the nearest human sense were those of dan and jeff and as soon as he was sure of that pal considered himself safe he ventured into and moved slowly down the road but as he drew near the big sycamore he broke into an eager trot it was at the sycamore that he had last seen johnny blazer and there that he had lost all trace of him and now he wanted to find if there was anything he might have overlooked he had given up all hope of finding johnny his long search had convinced him that his former master would never be found but not forgotten never to be forgotten was his long association with johnny his love for him and the good life they had lived together pal was going to the sycamore for the same reason that a human being re-reads old letters written by a dear companion whom he will never see again once more he stopped to read the wind currents and the tracks in the roads besides the fox and skunk only jeff's scent remained right there therefore jeff was the only human who had used the road last night but pal caught the fainter sense of smithville and the people inhabiting it they were distant odors and no one was coming he gave undivided attention to the sycamore winds had blown and rains had fallen but johnny blazer had bled here and his scent still lingered pal drank long and deeply of it he made a little circle as though the scent should lead him farther but it ended at the tree and the dog came back to sniff again he moaned softly in his throat because his affection for johnny had been great but johnny's scent ended where it began at the sycamore about to cast again pal halted in his tracks the morning breeze blew directly from smithville to him and the breeze had told him that nobody was coming now that was changed clearly pal caught the scent of pete whitney and he knew that pete was walking up the road the dog bristled but not because he saw any connection between pete and johnny's disappearance he knew only that all whitney's were enemies and that pete had been near when johnny was hurt he crouched in the brush undecided for the moment if he lay perfectly still pete probably would pass without seeing him but as the man drew nearer pal's nervousness increased he decided suddenly that he would be safer with jeff pete was just a short distance away when pal cleared the road in one bound and raced toward the cabin the dog knew that he had been seen but he did not care the one dangerous time had been the fleeting instant he needed to cross the road and that was dangerous only because the road offered no cover once in the brush he could run away from any man he found dan drawing water from the spring beside the cabin and slowed to a walk because he had run hard he was panting he paused very close to the boy and looked nervously back toward the road dan stared curiously at him 
What's down there? he questioned. What'd you find, pal? The great dog turned toward Dan and wagged his tail as evidence of good will, but his hackles remained raised as he accompanied the boy into the cabin. The good smell of frying bacon perfumed the air. Standing over the stove, Jeff looked around questioningly. Isn't that bucket a load for you, Dan? Nah, I can carry it. Jeff grinned. Most boys were proud of their physical prowess, and he had not offended Dan by offering to draw the water for him. He broke eggs into the sputtering skillet. Pal growled, and Jeff turned again to look. What's ailing him? I don't know. He must have smelled something he don't like. When he came up to me, he was running. Pal, knowing that Pete Whitney was coming toward the cabin, retreated to the far end of the room and stood. Still bristling, he showed his teeth. Jeff was puzzled. What the? Something's around, Dan said quickly. He looked out of the window. Jeff, Pete Whitney's coming. Eyes blazing, he looked toward the shotgun. Jeff saw and interpreted his glance. Remember, we're not going off half-cocked. Uh, all right. Jeff opened the door and saw the man standing in front of the cabin. Pete Whitney's clothing was slipshod, but that alone did not give him the air he had. Jeff was not able to place it at once. There was something about him that should not be, something very like a surly animal. About thirty, Pete had fine blonde hair that seemed rooted so precariously that the slightest wind might blow it away. His unshaven cheeks were covered with stubble. Pale blue eyes shifted sidewise, and he raised a foot as though about to run, and yet, at the same time, it was as though he had no intention of running. As far as Jeff could see, he carried no firearms, but he acted as though he were armed, and doubtless he was. Mentally, Jeff compared him to the man he had met yesterday. That man had also been careless of his clothing and appearance, but there was a strength and character in his being that was not evident in Pete. Bar Whitney was strong. Pete was weak. Jeff asked pleasantly, Something I can do for you? Nah, Pete spoke with a high nasal twang. You live here? Since yesterday, Jeff said, Dan and I are here together. I swan, Pete ejaculated. I swan. Jeff saw that he was obviously frightened. In spite of the fact that he seemed to be a man who would take fright easily, he might need help. Are you in trouble? Nah. It's just that I was passing up the road and... and... he blurted out. I swan, I saw Johnny Blazer's big dog. Jeff thought swiftly. Why should seeing Johnny Blazer's dog be cause for such alarm? He asked casually. Where'd you see him? Down there on the road, I swan, a, a haunt dog. Jeff understood and relaxed. Many of the mountain people believe firmly in haunts, spirits, and witchcraft, and everybody around Smithville had reason to believe that Pal must be dead. With an effort, Jeff concealed his amusement. A man such as this, thinking Johnny Blazer's dog dead, and coming suddenly upon him, might tremble easily. You did see him, Jeff said. He's here. He be. 
For a split second, Pete's eyes lost their lackluster appearance, and venom flooded them. A cold finger brushed Jeff's spine. Any man able to look like that was a dangerous one. Jeff thought of his pack and of the shotgun in its corner, and then he decided that he could handle Pete. And meanwhile, there were the amenities to be observed. Had breakfast? Nah. Come on in and have some. Pete shuffled into the cabin, mouth taut and eyes angry. Dan backed toward Pal. The dog growled savagely. Jeff's eyes caught Dan's, and he tried to flash a warning. He and Dan had a pact which included no hasty or ill-timed moves, and definitely no shooting of anyone. Jeff spoke sharply to the dog. Stop it, pal. Pal subsided, and Pete said nasally, Blazer Alls called him Buster. He's pal now. Jeff set a plate of bacon and eggs on the table and put bread and butter beside it. You may as well start, Dan. Unable to completely erase the anger from his eyes, not speaking, Dan sat down and began to eat. Jeff put the bacon and eggs he had intended for himself on another plate. Thoughtfully, he set the plate on the other side of the table, two places away from the furious Dan. Here you are, Mr. Whitney's the name, Pete Whitney. I'm Jeff Tarrant, and this is Dan Blazer. Yeah? Interest leaped in Pete's eyes. Any kin to John? He was my pop, Dan flared. That you know very well. Dan, remind your manners, Jeff remonstrated, putting more bacon and eggs in the skillet. I'm minding him. He knows who my pop was, and he knows me. Pete, who had been eating as though finishing the meal was a job he had to complete in a great hurry, put his fork down and bent over his plate. Again, Jeff thought uncomfortably of a hunted animal, and though he could not see Pete's eyes, he was sure they were once more venom-ridden. There was an awkward silence which Pete broke. Seems to me I do mind a young'un coming to see John. Dan flared again. Do you also mind that my pop was shot? Maybe you even know who shot him. Dan, Jeff thundered. For a few seconds, Pete lingered over his food. Then it was as though he thought out a decision which had been hard to make. He speared half an egg, curled a whole strip of bacon on the end of his fork, shoved everything into his mouth, and began to chew noisily. Nah, he said. I wouldn't know who'd done for John. Dan's upset, Jeff explained. He didn't realize what he was saying. An explosive. I did, too! lingered on Dan's lips and died there when he caught Jeff's eyes. As the latter turned to lift his own breakfast out of the skillet, Pete nodded vigorously. Likely, likely. Young'uns do get upset. What be you doing here? Jeff said smoothly. We represent Terran Enterprises Limited, and came because we thought we could do some business around Smithville. Pete's shifty eyes found Jeff's pack. Peddler, huh? Some people call it that. Why'd you find the dog? Over beyond Cressman, he made himself at home with us. Jeff put his own plate on the table and began to eat. Pete mopped up the last of his breakfast with a crust of bread, plopped it into his mouth, and licked his fingers. That done, he picked up the conversation where it had been dropped. Take care he ain't killed. Take care who isn't killed. The dog. 
He turned right snarly after Blazer was killed. Bill Ellis would have shot him if he hadn't took a mind to run away. Did he hurt anybody? Nah, but he had a mind to. Pete leaned back, looking at the ceiling, cleaning his teeth with his tongue. He asked suddenly, Where'd you get the young'un? For a moment Jeff fumbled. But Tarrant Enterprises Limited had taught him that it was not a good idea to be at a loss long enough to let anyone think too far ahead of him. He said glibly, Dan was farmed out to me. Jeff referred to the common practice of placing with accredited people who would support them youngsters who had no other place to turn. Dan glared. Jeff did not look at him. Pete Whitney said, you get a smart lot of work out of em, farmed out young'uns if you can womp em to it. Jeff's next words erased Dan's glare. Dan doesn't need womping. We're full partners. Ah. There was another silence, and finally Pete Whitney asked, What you peddlin? What do you need? I asked you. Cash or swap? Swap. Pete looked surprised that anyone should think he had cash. What can you swap? Pete reached inside his shirt and drew out a knife. It was much cruder than the work of art that Jeff had from Bart Whitney, but it was sturdy, and the blade, Jeff thought Riley, was certainly keen enough to penetrate anything that Pete might have reason to stab. Since there was a buyer for everything, it stood to reason that there would be a buyer for Pete's knife. Jeff went to his pack and took out a cheap jackknife, a compass, and a wrapped parcel. He extended the knife. I'll swap even for this. Pete accepted the knife, opened it, tried the blade on the back of his horny hand, and passed it back. Nah, that piddlin' thin bend on rabbit fur. Enjoying himself as he always did when bothering, Jeff handed the compass over. Pete looked at it, puzzled. He glanced back at Jeff. Do it till the hour? Dan laughed. Jeff explained. It's called a compass, see? The needle always points north. Anyone who carries this can tell any direction at all. Pete was honestly astounded. You mean they some what can't? There are some, but I thought you wouldn't be one of them. He spoke admiringly, stressing the you. Sales resistance faded to nothing at the seller, while convincing the buyer that he was much to be admired, could at the same time build up the buyer's opinion of himself. Like a good showman, Jeff had saved his masterpiece for last. He unwrapped the parcel to reveal a cheap box whose exterior was stamped with gaudy green dragons. Pete regarded it with narrowed eyes. This, Jeff said smoothly, I offer to very few customers. Now if you'll just keep your eye on the box... Pete obliged, bending so closely that his face was no more than six inches from the box. Jeff pressed a button. The lid flew open, and a green bellows, surmounted by a grinning clown's head, sprang up to hit Pete on the nose. He leaped backward, flung himself from the table, and crouched. Again Jeff thought of an animal, but this time it was a beast of prey, and it was ready to strike. The jack that had leaped out of the box quivered on the table, swaying this way and that. Completely astounded, Pete regarded it for a moment. Then sheer delight flooded his eyes. 
I swan. Jeff said proudly, Ever see anything like that? Put it back. Jeff pressed the jack into place. Uncertainly, still a little fearful of such magic, Pete came near. He extended a hand and immediately withdrew it. Do it again. Jeff pressed the button, and the performance was repeated. Sure now that there was nothing to fear, Pete picked the toy up and looked at it closely. He pushed the jack down, latched the cover, and pressed the button. When the clown's head flew up, he tittered nervously. I swan. For that I must have two knives. Got but one. Jeff frowned. The jack-in-the-box was a cheap trinket, and the knife was worth four times as much, but Pete considered the jack a very valuable object, and Jeff hoped to do much trading around Smithville. He didn't want it to be known for accepting the first thing offered, and besides, that was bad business. It took all the sport out of trading. Have to have something to boot, he said firmly. I got this. From his sagging pocket, Pete took a length of braided horsehide, but it had been so skillfully cured and so expertly braided that it was strong as rope and pliable as the finest cloth. It would make a wonderful bridle rein. But Jeff said hesitantly, I don't know what I'd use it for. For tying things. Well, Jeff allowed himself to be convinced. Pete sprung the jack again and again, fascinated by this simple thing which smacked of magic, because never before had he seen anything like it. And then holding his jack-in-the-box as though it were eggshells, he made the swift transformation from fascinated child to dangerous man. Stick to peddling, he said shortly, and took his leave. It was at the same time a threat and a warning, and Jeff knew it. For a moment he sat still, then got up and strolled quietly to the window. Going down the path, Pete Whitney sprung the jack, and his tittering giggle seemed again to be heard in the room. End of chapter 6